This is the LAW Podcast Series with Peter Gowers, the podcast to connect LAW members and have some fun talking about their personal and professional lives. Hello and welcome. This is the LAW Podcast Series. My name is Peter Gowers. On this episode of the podcast, we are heading to London in England, in the mighty UK, and we're going to be talking to Alaya Garcia, and Monica Bierska from Howard Kennedy, of course, in London, a very well-known firm uh, to all those involved with LAW. Ladies, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you for having us. This is our first doubleheader with two guests at once, so um, no doubt we're going to have some nervous moments where we perhaps speak on top of each other, but that's good. That's a good sign that we're keen to get in there and tell our stories. Let's start with the weather. How how's the weather uh, at this stage in the UK as you head into Christmas time? Oh, it's really a lovely um, day today, is it? It's really. I'm in the office and it's really cold in here. Um, but I think I'm a bit spoiled <laughs> because we had a really warm kind of October, November. It was quite rainy but quite warm, and it now turned into proper winter. So everyone gets in the lift and goes in a typical English way. Ooh, it's so chilly today, but at the same time, we are in December, so it's probably high time for it to get a bit chilly. So if you've not been to Australia, I'm sure you'd be aware, but uh, this time of year, it is generally very hot. And, you know, we often will have a Christmas time that is well in excess of 30 degrees Celsius. Uh, I am speaking to you recording this uh, wearing two jumpers and with the heater on in a very unseasonably cold uh, December Absolutely crazy. The world's gone mad with the weather, I think, this year. You know, I I was talking with some friends in the weekend and we were uh, remembering that last year in October, it was already absolutely freezing. (laughs) And as Monica was saying, this year until last week, the weather had been fine in terms of temperature and it just really dropped and the winter came in like a few days. Um, I do prefer when it's cold and sunny. I really like the sun to be out and mm. clear skies. Uh, I think the overcast weather in the UK, sometimes it makes me a little bit depressed. <laughs> so yeah. I prefer having the sun out. Yeah, I think if it's cold, you definitely want the sun out, don't you? Definitely. Well, look, let's get into the um, the questions here for the podcast. Now, we'll start with you, Monica. Um, you're obviously a partner at Howard Kennedy, and um, the firm's based in London, but where are you from originally? I'm European. <laughs> no, um, more, more specifically, I am Polish by origin and Silesian, of Upper Silesian to be more precise. Um, but I have been in the UK for a long time now. How did you get to the UK? Uh, by coach. <laughs> oh, I knew that was coming. <laughs> no, I, uh, I was um, studying linguistics and... Um, just wanted to experience being in England. So came here originally um, on a, um, as a language exchange student. 
um, and then got a place at a master's degree in here, um, then applied for extension of my visa. My passport got stuck with the home office for two years, so I couldn't <laughs> leave. Um, and then kind of got myself sorted out and, and stayed on. So you went to the UK as a lawyer and were interested in linguistics or that came later? No, no, no. So I came as a, as a linguistics student, um, then came back when I finished my degree, um, but I was pretty much a linguist and, and a kind of newly born interpreter when I came here and law wow. came to me much later, yes. Wow, okay. And Alaya, what about you? Where are you from originally? Um, so I'm from the south of Spain. Uh, it's a small city called Huelva. Um, and it's uh, the southwesternmost province in Spain. So we are between Seville and the Algarve in Portugal, uh, which are both more well-known than Huelva is. So that's nice because we keep it as a little secret. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's quite small, but um, it's on the coast in the Atlantic Ocean. We're not in the Mediterranean. We're on the other side. And yeah, we have fantastic weather and great food. So it's a, it's a great place to go back to as often as I, um, as I can. Yeah. And I'm not so interested in the vehicle that you travel in to get there, but how did you come to end up in the UK? Um, by chance, really. So after finishing my, um, master's degree, I, it was a hard time to find, uh, a job in Spain really as a young graduate um, because I think the 2008 financial crisis was still looming very largely over unemployment, especially for young people in Spain at the time. Uh, so I wasn't really sure what to do. Uh, I thought about maybe, you know, preparing some exams to become a civil servant or something like that because it seemed like really the only option to get a proper job. Um, so I decided to come to England just for a few months to improve my English, uh, to get like a proper um, title certifying my level of English and all that. And during that time, I was just really working as a, an au pair with a French family in Greenwich, which is in South London. In order um, to improve your English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh well I, w I had a hard time with the british accent at first i have to say because i i think in spain we probably consume more american culture um so you're sort of used to that milder accent and you know when you and now my partner is from liverpool they have this very heavy scouse accent so you know i'm i'm, I'm more well versed now in the british accent <laughs> um so yeah, that's how I, I came here and I was looking for jobs back in Madrid, which obviously is the bigger, biggest city and where there are more opportunities. Um, and then I found this small Spanish law firm based in London and they were hiring. They were looking for someone to, to join them. And I thought, you know, this was, was the perfect opportunity. I never thought I could practice in England without being qualified here. So this firm being Spanish, uh, seemed like the, perfect match and they hired me so I stayed with them for about four years and then I moved on to Howard Kennedy two years ago. And given the um, the competition that's currently taking place in Qatar in uh, the Middle East with both of your original countries featuring, uh, who, who are you supporting given that you both live in England? 
Well, I mean, after the performance of Spain last night, what can I say? It was truly embarrassing. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you cannot help but support your national team, at mm. least in, in my case. Uh, you have that feeling. But I, I never thought we were going to do very well, to be honest. I, we were past our prime. I was lucky right. to live through, you know, South Africa when we won the World Cup and like two Euros back to back. And that was a great time. But I don't think that's coming back anytime soon. So now I don't really have a, a clear preference for who I want to to win there. I, you know, I think England may well have a shot, but we'll see if they make it past France this this weekend. That will be a, an interesting match for sure. They have an amazing ability to um, uh, snatch defeat from the hands of victory. The the English team, don't they? So. Let's see how they go. Uh, and what about you, Monica? Who are you supporting? Well, Poland is now out as well. So yeah. uh, I'm in a similar boat to Alaya, but like yeah. really well done to them. I think they've done really well to get as far as they did. Oh, I thought but, they did um, too, yeah. Um, they, they, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't expecting to see them in, in even semi final, let alone the final. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um, for our American friends uh, listening, we're speaking about the. Um, Football World Cup or the Soccer World Cup, as it's probably known in the USA. Um, and interestingly, you know, being from, a, I guess, a, a non-soccer nation as well, uh, we, have a, we have a mixture between football and soccer that, that we use here in Australia because we have our own local football as well, which is different, again, from soccer. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been really interesting. And a number of the uh, guests that I've spoken to on the podcast in recent weeks, uh, their countries have, have been represented at the World Cup. So I just thought I'd sneak that question in there, given both of your origins. Monica, um, why did you decide to get into the field of law? It's not an easy answer for me to give um, mm. very difficult to explain so i mean as i as i've said i've been an interpreter before um having got stuck in here for a period of time it was very difficult for me to do any interpretation work so when i retrieved my passport <laughs> with my visa i actually moved to um to brussels to belgium spent a bit of time there and kind of whilst being there discovered that kind of being in the field of linguistics I, I, I did kind of legal um, interpretation and translation no one could really understand who I am am I a linguist am I a lawyer and and not really enjoying interpretation as much as I hoped I started requalifying so I was on the Eurostar twice um, a week uh, coming to England to do my my GDL so law conversion course and then law school um, for a long period of time yeah and then um, having finished law school, I um, got a training contract with a firm here in London, um, not so far away actually from um, Howard Kennedy now, kind of just a few blocks uh, mm. down the river from where I am at the moment. Um, I was with them for a long period of time. I was with that firm for nearly 11 years, um, then moved on and took on a role with um, a regional firm uh, that is the world's oldest law firm i think they have a guinness wow. record to testify yeah <laughs> right they are uh, yeah they they've been set up in 1570 and i have to say like even when i started wow. working there yeah. i didn't 
I didn't know what it really means until we had our 450th anniversary and I had to do a speech and I was working for like, okay, how do I place it on the timeline? And when yeah. I discovered the firm existed before the gunpowder plot, I was like, yeah, no, that's old. <laughs> that's really and, old. And I guess it was pretty much just uh, people advocating for their friends back then being lawyers, was it? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think any of the of the I vouch um, for this man. Hardness was still there. So <laughs> <laughs> um, and I from there I moved to Howard Kennedy not so long ago. I've been with Howard Kennedy for ten months now, so not even a full year. So just to drill down on that a bit, so your native language is Polish, and yes. you you when you say translation. You're assisting people of Polish accent with regards to English or vice versa? No, so I'm a fully qualified English lawyer. Um, I know relatively little about Polish law. So whilst I use my languages at work, it's um, it's not that I serve as just Polish clients or just German-speaking yeah. clients or, or anything like that. Um, my area of law is trust and estate disputes, so I deal with disputes over family wealth. Gee, I'd yeah, love to... Um, <laughs> over family wealth. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it, it's, um, it seems that the larger the wealth, the more the disputes, is what I've kind of figured out in recent years. Is that pretty accurate? Yes. Um, I mean, it sounds a bit unfair, but the... Um, as a generalization, I, th I think, yes. There's more to fight for, isn't there? There's more to fight for, but um, as well, um, that, that, I mean, when I think about the, the, the matters that I deal with, um, there are so many characters involved. And as mm. a result, there are such weird dynamics um, and issues that, um, just an average person on the street would not come across that that when you stop and think about it it's not surprising that those disputes arise and it's it's not it's it's not just greed it's 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 basically yeah. complicated situations very often yeah, and i think um it, it, now that it's become commonplace to have these blended families um in my experience anyway from what i've seen is is that's you know when you're describing complicated situations i think that's often the genesis of those of those environments exactly exactly it's it's more complicated families it's more modern families um so what what was traditionally a family unit before now is totally upside down you will have children through surrogacy you will have um children who change gender um, you will have parents' views conflicting with that and therefore grandparents rethinking as to whether they want their wealth to be passed down to their grandchildren whose lifestyles they may not necessarily approve. Because we're in England and we deal with a lot of trust structures that date back years and years, those mm. instruments themselves will, will very often not keep up with the societal changes mm. that, that we have seen certainly over the last 30 years. So, yes, they're, they're there is a lot of work around. Yeah, and that's something else that I learned recently is that in many cases uh, the the laws that were set up, let's take marriage, for example, uh, 
uh, although they've been altered to allow for same-sex marriage and and other variations of that, um, they still can be found to be out of date when certain things are tested against them, uh, as you've described. Exactly, exactly. And and there are really good to very simple examples for us here in England, for example, with treatment of um, adopted children. No one would think that you treat adopted children otherwise than, than yeah. actual children. Um, and no one thinks about that because we have legislation dating back to the 70s, which equalized the status of chil- children and adopted children. But when you think about trust structures that were created before the 70s, and there are plenty of those around, um, mm. it becomes slightly more trickier. It certainly does. Uh, Alaya, what inspired you to get into the legal field? Um, Well, when I was a teenager, I definitely rejected the notion of becoming a lawyer because at least on my dad's side, at least 75% of the family, four generations had studied law. They, They weren't necessarily then practicing as lawyers, maybe like civil servants or something else, but everyone had studied law in university. So obviously when you're a rebellious teenager, you're like, this is the last thing that I'm going to do. Um, But then when I was 18 and the time came to choose which degree to do, um, I sort of saw myself leaning towards that because it had a lot of theoretical uh, sort of subjects that you needed to study. And for me in high school, I loved those. So I, I was... Um, the first two years of the law degree in Spain at the time, which was a five-year degree, the first two years were very, very theoretical. So you did Roman law, history of the law, philosophy of the law, theory of law, all of that. And that to me was like really, really fascinating. And then in the last three years, you did more practical stuff. You know, you started to do like business law, civil law, whatever. Um, So I was kind of drawn into that. uh, And, you know, I, I had a U-turn on (laughs) on what I thought I was going to do. Um, And then I suppose the the, I practice family law now and uh, the road to family law was not something I would have predicted at the the time. I think when you start studying law in Spain in uni, everyone thinks they're going to be a notary public when they finish the degree because that's (laughs) like a very good job where you make a lot of money and Mm. it seems like you don't have to work that much, you know. It's a job for life. You get a lot of money and everyone goes into uni thinking, oh, I want to be a notary. <laughs> but obviously there's not that many people that then go on and do it. Uh, so when I started practicing in London for the first two years, it was a very small firm. So I was doing a little bit of everything. Um, and I consider them to be my training years because we don't really have an equivalent to the extensive years as a trainee that you have in the UK. Uh, so I was doing commercial litigation, civil litigation, um, personal injury, due diligences, a, a little bit of everything really that came through our door. And um, and then after those two years, sort of the opportunity presented itself for me to move on to family law. And I thought that was a lot more interesting than what I had, I had been doing, because when you do international family law, it's quite complex. There's a lot of different areas to it and each area has different rules and there's a lot of regulations within the European Union that we now are not no longer a part of 
And then there's a lot of treaties, a lot of conventions, uh, and then obviously the complexities of English law itself. So there's like a whole array of rules that you have to try to work together. Um, and that was really interesting to me. Um, and there's never a case that is the same as each other mm. in family law because you're dealing with so many emotional complexities on top of the legal complexities. So that makes it, it can be quite draining, but it does make, make it fun most of the time. <laughs> mm. And if you're dealing with um, uh, family law on an international scale, then does the relationship with LAW assist in that process in, in the other jurisdictions? Definitely, yes. We we do have a lot of clients who, well, most of our clients are high net worth or ultra high net worth. So that makes the makes it very recurrent that they have an international element to them somehow. So not necessarily that they're foreign, but they might be they may have a different nationality. They might live abroad and have assets here, or vice versa, uh, mm. live in the UK but have assets all over the world. Um, and you do need to know what's what's going on in those other jurisdictions, uh, because otherwise you're opening the door to mistakes. And LAW is always very, very useful um, for those type of cases, because you can usually pick up the phone to your counterpart in that jurisdiction, have a quick conversation with them, uh, just a high level conversation, but you get a really good idea of what mm. this uh, case would look like in their jurisdiction. And then, you know, if you need something more specific or some more um, advice down the line, then you have that recourse and you can go to them. Uh, so it's really, really useful. And we do get also, of course, uh, incoming and outgoing uh, referrals when we have clients that need advice in those uh, jurisdictions. So it's definitely a very, very helpful tool for us. Mm. Um, and do you practice in any other areas other than family law? Um, no, it's uh, I do family law. The other um, quest I guess I have in Howard Kennedy is trying to develop our uh, relationships with Spain and Latin America. Uh, so we do have a few regional desks in Howard Kennedy. Some of them are very, very developed, especially, well, Monica is probably more into that than I am, but probably I, I would say um, the US, India, uh, Far East, those are... Uh, regional desks that are very, very developed. Um, and when I joined, it was sort of like a conversation of there's this whole area of Spanish-speaking countries where we haven't really focused that much. And it's a huge area, obviously, because if we, if you have the whole of Latin America, there's so much potential in, in those countries. Um, mm. And we do have amazing firms based there in LAW um, that can help us a lot. So I'm, I've been trying to develop that a little bit within the network and, and also outside the network with other people like intermediaries, you know, wealth managers, all of that. And I think Monica and I know that the private clients and family area in some of those countries is still a little bit un underdeveloped, including Spain. Um, there's still a lot of, um, firms that they focus a lot on corporate and they sort of ignore the private side of their clients. So we're also trying to raise uh, a little bit, you know, flagging the issues that can affect their clients so that mm. they know that they're there and they know that, you know, they can pick up the phone and talk to us or to anyone in LAW to know what's going on with those issues that sometimes are seen as collateral or peripheral, but they can have a great impact on 
corporate planning and corporate issues. Yeah, makes sense. And and what about with your um, native language? Are you using uh, Spanish much in the work that you're doing? Um, well, I, I am using it uh, for clients that are referred to me that are of Spanish origin or of Latin American origin. At the moment, I'm dealing with a couple of cases where the client is Spanish. Um, and it's sort of a, like a jurisdiction battle. Like you do, the, the other side wants to divorce in England because it's famously <laughs> a very generous jurisdiction for <laughs> the financially weaker party, yeah, let's put it gotcha. that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not always the wife, but still usually the wife if, if she has been the one taking care of the children or whatever mm. and has left her job. Um, and obviously Spain is, uh, is have a, less generous um jurisdiction so the the husband wants to divorce in spain um mm. and so a battle comes about where to have the divorce first and then mm. comes the divorce so it's a it's a long long battle and, but in those cases clients really like to be able to deal with someone that speaks their language even if i think even if they speak english they yeah. like that reassurance because it's not only the language there's a big cultural barrier things are dealt with very differently in different jurisdictions. And yes. sometimes an English lawyer, even if they speak that other language, may not necessarily think about these background issues. Yep. Culturally. You know, for example, that in England you're supposed to tell the whole truth. You're supposed to give full disclosure. You have that, that legal duty, but you don't have that legal duty in many other countries. It's not that right. people are being cheeky. It's just that it doesn't work like that in their countries. Yeah. And they assume that, it's the same in England, but it isn't. So mm. that's, for example, I, I a big thing. More. Yeah, they, they may be, the client may be sending you lots of documents thinking that you that's for you as the lawyer and they're secret and confidential, but you do have a duty to the court as well as a solicitor to give disclosure. So if you don't explain that beforehand, then there's going to be a big discussion there with the clients and they're not going to be happy about it. Mm. So I think it's it's helpful having foreign lawyers in that sense. And I think in Howard Kennedy, other than Monica and I, there's, there's a good cohort of lawyers who come from different jurisdictions and they give that other, that different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like there might be some business coming for one of you right now with that siren going past <laughs> I can hear in the background. Um, <laughs> we don't do any criminal law. <laughs> <laughs> do you uh, and I say this slightly in jest but um you, you mentioned that in in that particular case one party would prefer to divorce in Spain and one would prefer to divorce in England do, do you ever get the uh, neutral territory scenario where the, you know Switzerland ends up being the place because no one can decide or doesn't work like that <laughs> Well, in, in the case of, so each area of the law has different rules, uh, but in the case of uh, divorce, you usually need to have a pretty um, uh, important link with that country if you want to divorce there. So it's usually either where you live or that you are national for, from that country. And in the case of England, also that you are domiciled in, in England, which is a very abstract concept yeah. that, you know, it's used in all sorts of different ways. And I still haven't got my head around it. I mean, yeah. I think it's a, it's a little bit too vague for my taste. <laughs> well, I think uh, Roman Abramovich got himself in trouble with that uh, definition a few months ago, didn't he? 
Yes, <laughs> we so, do get a lot of uh, a lot of that that sort of trouble, but it's not as in commercial law where you can just sign a contract and say, you know, we'll we'll decide this in Switzerland, even if you know one yeah. party is from Australia, the other is from the UK. Yeah. In in family law, you need a closer uh, connection. Mm. So it's usually two countries that are involved. Uh, you you can get some cases where there are maybe three countries, but those are uh, more. They're a bit rarer, I would say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, makes sense. And Monica, what about you? Is family law your only area as well? Or do you practice in other areas of law? So um, I I don't do family law like Olayada. So I, okay. I am we're we're similar. We're kind of cousins in that respect <laughs> in in our yes. area of law. But I um, so I I tend to deal with disputes over family wealth after death of a family member, uh, or disputes over family wealth that has been locked up in trust structures for generations, um, and and therefore I I wouldn't deal with a divorce um, or split of wealth. Um, as a result of a divorce directly. But um, trust and estate disputes is my only area that I practice at the moment. When I was starting, I was doing more general kind of civil litigation and, yeah. and kind of your, your contract disputes and, and your commercial disputes as well. But as I grew in the profession, I kind of was allowed to specialize more into, into the niche of estate and trust disputes, which I, I really do enjoy. So that's what I was going to say. Is that something that you uh, sort of zeroed in on and thought, look, I, I, you know, not only do I enjoy it, but it's something I can see myself spending a lot of time in. Is it something you did by choice or was it just there by default and you figured, well, I'll run with this? It 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 was a bit of a coincidence, which I I think a lot of people from kind of looking at lawyers from the outside think that we make very conscious choices about the area of law that we will specialize in. And I and I don't want to take away from people who do make those very conscious choices. But in my experience, for a lot of us, it is more kind of a coincidence. And for me, it was a bit of a coincidence um, in that the firm that I was working for within the kind of commercial litigation department happened to be doing this area of law. It was at the time where trust and estates disputes were growing. There was still legal aid available for that. Um, And therefore, even as a very young lawyer, you got to work on absolutely amazing cases because the complexity of the law that was involved was something that that people who train now wouldn't get anywhere close to because those cases are such high value and are so complicated and clients therefore expect delivery of high level advice which i'm not saying when you're younger you're unable to do it's just probably for the fear of the fees that clients have to end up paying younger lawyers kind of are assisting rather than running those cases when we did them on legal aid no one minded because you were getting paid three pounds fifty an hour anyway um, it, that wasn't the going rate. I'm just exaggerating it. Um, so, so got to work in those amazing cases. And I, what I really like about this area is not only that you get to work with people, and I am definitely a people's person. I really like working with people. So being able to resolve problems of people rather mm. than um, than businesses um, gives me the thrill. But also the the challenge and the complexity of it. There isn't there isn't a case which is very similar to each other. 
they are all very different and you end up dealing with totally different aspects of the law on each one of them so it's mm. not like oh you're you're always that that's the process for example in um personal injury or clinical negligence which i did when i was training as a lawyer you have a process and that's the process that you follow on each and every single one of your cases in yeah. in in my area you haven't got that at all and it's a challenge sometimes and when we when we train um younger lawyers it is sometimes difficult for them because i don't think you reach a point where you think okay now i know everything and i am an yeah. absolute walking encyclopedia of private wealth disputes and i can do everything you learn mm. all the time and that that is something that i really enjoy interesting and given that you do uh, deal with estates on a day-to-day basis can you uh, briefly explain to me exactly what a duchy is i've got no idea what a duchy is <laughs> oh really <laughs> okay fair enough well we're constantly hearing about the uh, now he's the king but previously the prince of wales duchy where he gets all his money oh, from. oh duchy okay now yeah, okay yeah. now now i get well <laughs> so it might have been my australian accent that uh threw you off <laughs> Um, do you know what? You would have to speak to a lawyer from a firm like Co who do a lot of like royal okay. <laughs> and estate work. That's next level um, estates, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's not something that that you or me would have in our estates. We wouldn't have a duchy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking for it. I can't find it anywhere. And and not many of my clients would do. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Fair enough, but it's it, it's a way they derive income somehow. Yeah, I probably know as, as as much or as little as you. <laughs> Fair enough. Alaya, I meant to keep watching the, the crown to find out this. <laughs> That's right. It's our only source of knowledge. They, Do you know what? They, I watched all of it and I still don't know. So. Oh, really? <laughs> they say it's a very good, um, apparently even the, the British royal family, obviously not all of them, but a number of them have been asked about it and they say it's a – it's a pretty accurate depiction of what goes on. Yeah, I think they were complaining a little bit more about the last season because obviously it's pretty much all about Diana, which is a thorny, a thorny yeah. issue to say the yeah. least. Uh, but it it is very good. I I think it. I, I was kind of disappointed a little bit, but the, by the last season, it didn't feel as good as the other ones. But definitely the four first seasons were incredibly good and i mean mm. i don't take it as a as a history book because <laughs> it's a work, of, work no. of fiction after all but it does seem like it must be quite difficult to grow up or marry into that environment i mean it's uh it's yeah. very peculiar <laughs> well, if the, if the last couple of years have uh, been anything i i think uh, just watching the whole circus between the the now us based royals and the uk based yeah. royals it seems like there's there's a lot of um unease amongst them yeah but on well, a totally human says, level yeah yeah uh, but i think there's only yeah, a couple of law firms in london who get get to work for the royals and uh, they have done for done so for many many years so it's 450 kind of years that you can pitch you know you can go to buckingham palace and pitch to, to be the next lawyer of the royals <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but on a totally human level i think it must be incredibly difficult for any family to to have your life on such a display and yes to an extent they 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 
that's because of the position they're in. But um, mm. it, it's uh, like with the family, we do deal with a lot of kind of high net worth and ultra high net worth families. But mm. it's our job to then advise them and assist them with keeping their lives private, whilst the royals haven't got much choice over that. So, yeah, it's very true, and and it's uh, something that you could never really imagine. Um, I don't know if you have the same sort of conversation um, topics in the UK, but certainly I've heard uh, in the US and in Australia from time to time you know, this difference between uh, public figures and those that are well-known, but they're not public figures. So, you know, they're not um, politicians, for example, who choose a public life and are voted into their roles, um, actors and singers and, you know, the like. They it's, a, it's often an interesting paradigm because I guess they want and need the limelight on, on one count, but when they're out to dinner with their family or friends, uh, you know, they don't necessarily want the limelight in those situations. But um, there's, there's often been that debate that politicians aren't afforded that same balance because they choose to be in the public eye. That's true, but there's also this new kind of modern invention of celebrities being known for being celebrities. And you kind of, when you're asked, like, who are they? You're like, oh, I don't, like, I don't really know what they do. They're just well known. Yeah. And, and I think that's what introducing the confusion, because when you have people who put themselves in that position to be known and be very public and open about their life, regardless of the of what the aspect of their life is, it, yes. it's like where where does the general public then draw the line? Yes, it's it's absolutely right. Famous for being famous is, a, you know, it's it's never been more relevant than it is in, in these days. And um, yeah, that's exactly right. Ladies, um, hobbies. I'll start with you, Monica. What do you like doing outside of um, your business in in the legal field? Oh God, I'm probably a bit of a butterfly in that I did a lot of things and then I, I swapped and changed. So when I was much younger, I did gymnastics. I then had an injury, had to stop that. So I was doing dance. Then I um, grew up and had children and stopped dancing altogether. Um, so my probably my, my most favorite pastime at the moment is trekking, doing a bit of climbing. And I, I genuinely really like people. So just hanging out is probably mm. my pastime as well. Socialising and having fun. Yeah. And what about you, Aliyah? Um, Well, I, I also love hanging out, of course. Mm. <laughs> if it's with a glass of wine, even better. We do have a lot <laughs> of that over these Christmas weeks where I feel like we're having an event or something to go to every single day. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I suppose... Um, my favorite thing outside work would be anything that is uh, art, arts related, I would say. So I was never a great athlete or anything like that, unfortunately. But I did, um, I was in a, like a classical music choir for a few years when I was a teenager. And I really loved that. I mean, for a few years before deciding to study law, I totally thought I was going to be in like the classical music feel which i still mm. feel like oh that, that would have been so nice when i go to a concert and you know they're there playing and it's so beautiful you feel like ah, that's such a nice such a nice profession but i didn't really have the talent for it 
uh, on the other mm. hand. So it's just, uh, it's nice to be an spectator, but I, I really love, you know, music and cinema and, you know, uh, the vis visual arts and all of that. Um, so I try to do as much as possible of that. And if I win the lottery, I'm definitely going to spend a lot of time just doing that, you know, just, uh, reading yeah. and going to the movies and things like that. Uh, yeah. And then uh, do a bit of traveling, uh, I guess, uh, I also really, really like that. So I, mm -hmm. I try to organize nice, nice trips as often as I can. Work what instruments me. did you play? Uh, so I played a little bit of uh, the piano, um, which I don't really have a full-on piano now in my in my house. Uh, I only have uh, like a keyboard, which is it's not the same feeling. But, uh, <laughs> you have I to come like to mine, Olaya. Oh, you do have a piano. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm definitely nice. coming. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Yeah. And I used to be able to read music really well, but now it's like when you're learning to read, you know, that I'm, I have to be like <laughs> note by note, like, oh, what was mm. this? It's really frustrating. It's like, it's like a language really that you, if you don't practice it, you sort of lose it. So that, that's yeah. a bit sad, but you know, I can still read it more or less, but if I'm, if I'm trying to play at the same time as I read, it takes forever, which is very frustrating. <laughs> Yeah. It does come back, but with a little bit of practice, it does come back. Yeah. And on the art side of things, uh, I imagine the things that you can see in England would be quite different to what you would be able to see at home in Spain. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I love about London, and I would have to think it very hard before going back to, to Spain, um, is that there's so much to do in London, so much to see. I mean, even if I, I go to things, try to go to things every weekend, there's still so many things that I'm missing <laughs> and mm -hmm. so many plays or I love musicals, for example, but so many things that have been on the West End for maybe a year and then they go off and, and I'm like, oh God, I never got to see that. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's really a lot to choose from, uh, which to me, it makes it very excited that you always have quality stuff as well um to see and things that yeah it it's it would be hard to see in spain uh you know you do get uh good theater and things like that in in madrid but i guess in terms of museum exhibitions um something that is also a bit more modern you know like the visual arts um you do get a lot of that and the theater here obviously is is amazing in the in the mm. uk the quality is great um and even in terms of cinema and things like that, um, in Spain, we, stu we still dub uh, everything that it's on TV. It's dubbed. It's not in the original really? language with subtitles, which I find is making people not learn English properly. <laughs> because I feel, I mean, I, I never went to like a private academy for English. It was only what you learn in school. But then I did like to see all of these things in the original language with subtitles. Mm. And I think that helps so much um and even in the cinema there are cinemas that show things in um in the original language but the the, the big chains of cinemas in spain they still are showing every movie dubbed into spanish which yeah, you know i really strange. really hate <laughs> i really yeah, hate seeing really a dubbed strange. movie it's it is really strange because it's the main tool that the actors have is their voices and how yeah. they express themselves so it's you're seeing like a fake copy of the movie. It's like if you see a a sort of 
not very good reproduction of the Mona Lisa or something. And they're like, oh, this is the Mona Lisa, but it really isn't. So they can have Tom Hanks speaking in Spanish all of a sudden. I know. (laughs) It's really old. It's really old. The only thing I can't bear is watching The Simpsons in the original because I grew up watching it with the Spanish uh, dubbing, (laughs) you know. And so when I see a clip, you know, on Twitter or whatever of The Simpsons in the original American, I'm just like, wow, that's (laughs) that's not The Simpsons. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny, isn't it? It's even weirder because in cinemas you will have films in original with subtitles unless it's a film for children when it's dubbed. But on TV... You 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 have a kind of hybrid between the two. So you have the original, which is muted a little bit, and then you have one person reading over them with kind of like a few seconds delay. So you can oh. hear you can hear the background and then kind of a, a narrator reading it out. And my children are fully bilingual, and when they saw program like English speaking program on Polish TV with this, and my my eight year old goes like. Why do they say it's twice? <laughs> they <don't. laughs> well, yeah. that's when you know that they're fully bilingual. <laughs> they didn't see the difference. Yeah. It was just so funny. Um, kind of, it was like, why, why do they say it twice? <laughs> yeah, that's funny, isn't it? I, I remember I went to um, I went to a cinema in Singapore once to to watch a movie with a friend of mine, and. They obviously speak English there pretty well, but whatever cinema we were at, it was dubbed in their version, which I guess is Mandarin, but it's sort of like a a hybrid version, and then it had subtitles in English. And I was like, well, it was originally in English anyway. Why don't you just leave it in English? (laughs) But no, that's how they did it. That must have been an experience, yeah. It was. I actually was – I mainly wanted to go – because I just wanted to know how exactly it was going to get played. I just wasn't, I was like, sure, is it in English? He said, oh, you'll see. I was like, oh, okay. And that that was the experience, (laughs) was seeing a movie that I think I'd already seen anyway that was dubbed in Chinese language back again with English subtitles, thinking that's a hell of a long way around to to get back to where you started anyway. <laughs> I wonder how they did the subtitles, whether they actually did the script from the original or actually were translating yeah, from Mandarin. Good point. I know, that's what's like that. Very good point. Um, ladies, <laughs> I'm interested to know a bit more about Howard Kennedy. We, we know, obviously, what you do. Now, one of the things that um, Leon Logan Nathan, the chairman of LAW, said to me, this is a few years ago, I, I attended uh, one of the uh, Asia-Pacific conferences in Singapore, and he said to me, Howard Kennedy has the best address in the world. And I said, oh, really? And so I'm interested to know, aside from the fact that you've got a London Bridge address, which is pretty swanky, um, what other areas of law do Howard Kennedy, uh, are they involved with and, and other things of note about the firm? So we, we are a full-service firm, and I know probably a lot of LAW members say that, and that is what is what is really amazing about LAW, that so many of us are full-service firms. So what it means is there is, it's like for 450 of us, I think, we're all in yeah. one building, uh, in one building at one London Bridge. Yeah. Um we we take several floors in the building and you you have people doing pretty much 
every area of civil law that you can imagine. We do a little bit of crime. We don't do kind of the the old Bailey style crime. Um, so we we will we 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 do not defend clients in kind of big criminal trials. So we do have a kind of white collar crime we call it department. Uh, that deals with that and we have people do like a lot of people dealing with property law um a lot of people dealing with MA, commercial transactional work um, um kind of general commercial litigation family law private wealth um not just disputes we we have a whole army of people dealing with tax planning estate administration um who am I missing? Oh, yeah. we, we do pretty much everything that you can imagine. Challenge me and I'll tell you whether we don't do it. It's probably <laughs> going to be exceptional. Exactly. Yeah, I think we, you mentioned pretty much everything. Uh, we have some uh, employment people as well, which I suppose in the with private wealth, uh, it, it works together pretty well because we may be, um, you may be doing in private wealth some uh, planning, some wealth planning for someone that is coming into the UK uh, maybe as a, as an employer and they may need to know how to employ, uh, have to have employees here in the UK. So we, they're sort of overlapping with a lot, a lot of the, um, other departments. And then, yeah, pretty much everything civil and, and corporate. We have like energy, intellectual property. It's sort of like specialized teams without the big, within the big, um, commercial team. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, are there any particular growth areas in your firm? A few, um, and it will probably. If, if had you spoken to people across the firm, they would probably tell you something something else because they're going to be more into their area. For us, mm. within so we we are both part of um, the private wealth sector. So our private private wealth sector is that arm of the firm that deals with clients who are private individuals. And it's the employment team, property people, um, estate planners, tax planners, um, asset private wealth disputes, family people, um, and and that entire sector I think is is a real growth sector for the firm at the moment. Um, we we I mean for me definitely my, um, my sector, so private wealth disputes is is on a on a spurt, is on a growth. It has been on a growth for a long period of time, but it's not just for this firm in general um yep. there is a growth in this area I've, I've read an article this week saying that since 2018 the number of of private wealth disputes has doubled um mm, wow. so um it is a real growth and you, you can see that as well in our team so i've joined the firm 10 months ago and from a team of three in that space of time, we have grown to a team of six people doing just this, just private wealth disputes. And Alaya, uh, divorce rates are up since COVID, I take it? <laughs> um, I think there's a little bit of uh, a myth surrounding that. But because, <laughs> I mean, I think during COVID, people were having a hard time making that decision purely because of all the rules and regulations surrounding COVID. That made it very difficult to say, I need to move out of my house and move somewhere else because for a while you couldn't even uh, move into a different <laughs> rental property or anything like that. Yeah, the whole property system was sort of uh, in a pause for a few weeks um, or even months during yeah. the first wave of COVID. So I, I suppose some people were... Uh, 
putting also that decision on hold for a bit until things calm down. So I guess after that, uh, there was a, an increase um, of people that for a few months hadn't made the decision. Uh, and similarly, now with no-fault divorce, which has been very recently introduced in England in wow. April. Um, so before that, you you needed to prove the reason why you were um, getting divorced. And there were only five possible facts. Uh, most people would usually go for unreasonable behavior. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's because it, it, it was the more uh, general vague yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. fact where you could sort of put a few things that weren't really that unreasonable but yeah, uh, yeah. It, it got you the divorce um, <laughs> and now uh, finally they've introduced no-fault divorce that means that people can make a joint application both parties rather than having one against the other if they yes. both agree that they want to get a divorce um, and even if they don't agree you don't really need to prove why you're divorcing you just need to say that the marriage has broken down. So that is making uh, things slightly easier, um, more collaborative in cases that can remain amicable. Not all of them can remain amicable. Of course. Those yeah. that can. Um, and I think some people were also waiting for that to kick in for a few weeks uh, because they wanted to benefit from the new rules. So they probably, for the few months, uh, the first few months in 2022, um, there was a, a drop in cases being filed. And then when in April, the new rules kicked in, uh, there was a, an increase. But I think now it's probably stabilizing because it's, you know, it's not, um, it's not an investment. It's not tax rules. It's things that are very personal. And if you're divorcing, you're divorcing. You're not going to, uh, you're not going to think about where you fall in the statistics. It's just something that you need to do. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to catch a trend, I think, in those uh, in family disputes because the circumstances are so different for each each client. Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. Um, all right, well, I might ask you this question first, Aliyah. In regards to LAW, you mentioned before that you've done some cross-border collaborations before, but I guess uh, on this podcast we're giving everyone an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you or make a mention to uh, an LAW person, member or member firm that they've done some work with and, uh, you know, that they'd like to say thanks and give them a shout out to for whatever reason they feel like. Sure. Well, unfortunately, I haven't been able to be to attend any in-person LAW meetings yet because obviously my first year with Howard Kennedy was still very tainted by COVID. And we're only just sort of like coming out of that. I'm hoping mm. to be able to go to the the Warsaw uh, conference next year if I can. Yeah, I've never been, so I'm mm. I'm sure that Monica, you will be there, and you can uh, serve as a tour guide as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> but during my she'll have um, a football strip on. Don't worry about that. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, during my time in LAW, I've. I've met um, a few of the member firms um, as I was trying to develop this uh, Spain LATAM desk. Uh, mm. And I've been very impressed by, by many of them. But, you know, um, uh, I would say the uh, Francisco and Hernán Fontaine, the, they are from our Chile firm. Uh, they were uh, a really impressive people to, to talk with. Uh, Santiago Gutiérrez from Colombia. 
the Santos Elizondo team in, in Monterrey, in Mexico. Um, but I would say probably the person that will make a big difference for me this year will be Mark Bees, who is the facilitator of the leadership program, because I've just enrolled in that. Uh, so I've only been to one meeting so far. Uh, that's supposed to last, I think, about nine months. Uh, but yeah, I'm hoping to make the most out of that. Uh, there's quite a lot of people that have signed up. So, uh, I'll be able to, to make ongoing connections through that. And hopefully we're, we're hoping that a lot of the people that have signed up for that this year will be able to go to the Warsaw, uh, meeting in, in May next year. Um, mm. and finally meet in person. Yeah. Absolutely. Cause that's the, the number one benefit of LAW is all those in-person meetings. Um, two things I'd like to say about that. The first is that when you're in full swing speaking Spanish, I could listen to that accent all day, although I don't understand a word you're saying. Um, and the other thing is I just suddenly hit me. Um, you, you were saying earlier about the difference in pronunciation between um, Spain and uh, South American people who speak Spanish. So do you change the pronunciation of your surname depending on uh, people from which country you're talking to? No, I mean, not not with Spanish speakers. With English speakers, I definitely do. So I, if yeah. I pick up the phone, I'm like, Olaya Garcia, Arreciado. Because if I say it in Spanish, they just don't understand. So, you know, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to make it easy for them. But yep. with uh, Spanish speakers, we, we definitely do understand each other perfectly well, even mm. if there are um, differences. And also I'm from Southern Spain, from Andalusia. And we have a sort of uh, a softer accent that is kind of similar to, it's, it's, it's in between proper Castilian Spanish and South America. You know, so we're sort of a bit in the middle between the two of them. Uh, so I think it we're, we're easier to connect probably with South American people because we don't have a hard Castilian accent. You're a bit more flexible. Yes, it's it's a bit more, uh, it's, uh, it's more breathed, I guess, you know. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, it's a little actually, bit softer. I actually interviewed an Australian guy a few years ago on another podcast and he, um, in his world travels, ended up in Spain. I'm not going to say it was where you are, but sounds like somewhere quite close to there. And uh, he fell in love while he was there, so he learned Spanish. And he said that when he speaks Spanish now to other people from Spain, when he's obviously not in that area, he said that he has an accent within because of that region that he spoke Spanish from, which I felt was amazing in itself but yeah it makes sense the regional accents are obviously a bit different yeah well, well if you ever want to have a laugh or anyone that listens to the podcast just uh go on youtube and uh look for people from gibraltar speaking english um mm -hmm. they speak english perfectly but they have the funniest accent because they are back to back with cadiz which is a region in southern spain where they have a really heavy accent uh, nice. and so they speak english with the the best accent ever. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll definitely look it up. So, people from Gibraltar speaking English. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, right. it's quite an experience. Sounds like it. And, Monica, yeah. what about you? Anybody from LAW or any firms you'd like to give a shout-out to? Uh, too, too many probably to name all. 
I wouldn't be in the LAW at all if it wasn't for our own Tony Hunt here from Howard Kennedy, who pulled me Legend. into LAW really early on when I was a total newbie. And Tony was like, oh, do you... Um, do you want to join the the European meeting in Helsinki? And I was like, oh, okay, I can try it. And 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 I have to say, from from that meeting, um, I I I really fell in love with the organisation and how welcoming and how non-hierarchical everyone was, and and how kind of going into a room full of people you don't know, you you kind of feel at home um, really quickly, um, and and. Genuinely, there are too many people to mention, and probably because of my first experience being European, I would be a bit unfair in mentioning a lot of just mm. European people. But um, but credit to each and every single one of them, regardless of how new or how long established members they are. Everyone is is like seems like they really do get on and form valuable relationships that you can you can rely on, and and it's just a testament to that. I've been. To I've been around for 10 months. It's not long at all. I've been to two meetings, the, the regional meeting and the, um, and the AGM. And, and I already have people in my phone book that I know I can just ring up and say like, Oh, mm. hi, how is it going? And can I get a bit of help? I even have like Rolf, who I have in my phone as my Swiss boss, because we made a bet in, in US that I lost and I therefore agreed to be his UK secretary. Rolf, by the way, I'm still waiting for those jobs to come and I still haven't had any. <laughs> <laughs> um so it, yeah no, it like it, it's really valuable to be able to form those relationships mm, well that's the basis of law and it's funny because there's probably people who've been at member firms for or i'd say around three years who've probably also only been to two meetings because of everything that's been going on so yeah. you, you haven't missed out but that's the purpose of this podcast is you know, to get to know some members from the firms who haven't been to too many meetings or, you know, are new to the group but but understand the, the purpose and, and the benefit of the LAW community. Ladies, it's been a pleasure speaking to you both. I, I really thank you for your time and learning both of your stories and, and uh, what you do within your firms and, uh, you know, your position within LAW. So I really appreciate you coming on and speaking to me on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for having us. That was Monica Bierska, partner at Howard Kennedy, and Alaya Garcia, an associate at Howard Kennedy in London. I'll catch you again on the next LAW podcast series. You've been listening to the Lawyers Associated Worldwide podcast series with Peter Gowers the podcast where LAW members go one-on-one to discuss their professional and personal lives. More episodes coming soon.